So hello and welcome to the latest installment of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely, here with my co-host Andrew Gutman, and we are two accidental activist parents who spoke up about what was happening in our children's schools. And now we talk about those issues and education in general from a parent perspective with the hope of finding some solutions. And today we are very happy to welcome Ian Rowe. He is the founder of the recently launched Vertex Partnership Academies, and he's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ian also was CEO of the Public Prep Charter School Network for 10 years and also had held leadership positions before that with Teach for America, the Gates Foundation, as well as MTV. And Ian is also the author of the recently released Agency. Uh, his new book, in which he seeks to inspire young people of all races to build strong families and be the masters of their own destinies. So Ian is also my friend and colleague from the Woodson Center, where we work together launching its supplemental school curriculum on Black history and excellence. And then Ian is also on his local school board. So he is a busy man. And so we welcome you. <laughs> um, great to be here with you, Beth and Andrew. I love the accidental activist parents. I love that. And it has the added benefit of being true. So <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, well, um, more power to you. I think there are many parents across the country who have suddenly recognize that they have a much greater role to play in their kids' education. Uh, that, that is true. And you also do not know where it's going to lead to. So, um, well, we are, we are happy to have you and we have lots to cover. You are very busy. And so why don't we start with your book, Agency, as it really does capture the philosophical engine for so many of your ventures, including the schools you run and your school board work and, you know, everything that you are busy with. So tell us, how is the book being received by people in your various spheres and, maybe talk a little bit about what agency is. And right. I'm actually curious as how it bumps up against words like equity and these types of ideas that are so pervasive in our schools. Yes, well, very violently. <laughs> um, well, yes. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I've been looking forward to this uh, discussion. And, you know, so far agencies have uh, been doing well. We're on our second printing, you know, if, if that means anything in the in the publishing world. So, um, but, you know, I, I have had the great fortune over the last, you know, really 20, 30 years of my career from working at places as, as unique as MTV and the Gates Foundation to the White House to Teach for America, as you mentioned, actually running schools in the heart of the South Bronx for a decade. Um, you know, the, a lot of the organizations I've worked with have been in the in the business of trying to identify ways to strengthen opportunities for young people. And I, I, think, I've, I think I've learned um, something about what are the factors that really drive human flourishing? And what are the factors that really equip young people to know the tools and the strengths that they do have, even in challenging circumstances? And you know, one of the things, part of the reason I run schools is I want young people to know that they can do hard things. And what I've observed, especially in the last couple of years after um, George Floyd, there's been an acceleration of narratives that in my view are, are actually trying to convince young people of all the things that they can't do, that they can't do hard things, or that there are these oppressive forces that are holding them back and I felt we needed an empowering and compelling 
alternative uh, to these narratives. And, and I'm happy to describe the, the two narratives that I think are out there. That'd be great. Yes, please do. I'm curious, though, to jump in. Were you always passionate about education? Um, you know, as the child of, of Jamaican immigrant parents who came to the United States, um, who really valued education, I mean, they saw a high quality public education as the pathway to a great future. Um, you know, my parents, uh, um, they actually, my dad, you know, left Jamaica to go to England to finish his um, education. Um, my mom also, you know, worked very hard in school. She became a nurse and, and, then, and then ultimately went to work for what was then Manufacturers Hanover Trust. Um, so they believed in a strong family, strong faith, and they believed in really high quality education. And especially when they came to this country in the mid to late 1960s, that was a very tumultuous time, particularly around issues of race. And so they came eyes wide open of what they would face, you know, racial discrimination and other challenges. And frankly, they didn't like what they were seeing with the way that they saw young black men being raised. So they, they doubled down in terms of the focus on education for me. So I had a great K to 12 education. I went to Brooklyn Tech, which is one of the specialized high schools in New York City. Um, and then after that, I went to Cornell and I was mentoring in schools. Um, after that, while I was working at what was then Anderson Consulting, now Accenture, and I was uh, mentoring all these kids who, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, were talented, had lots of capacity and yet either because of the zip code that they were born into or the family structure that they were born into their opportunities were limited and so early on so I had a great ed public education and early on I had enough experiences with kids to know that they weren't getting the same benefit that I did so I became passionate about trying to figure out how to take what I had learned and what I had experienced to make that more broadly available to, to many more kids. Um, and, and it is kind of the, 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 the driving force behind my book, Agency, and these, these two narratives that I alluded to, you know, I, I call the first big narrative, uh, blame the system. And the other I call blame the victim, because I think these two narratives together are impeding young people's ability to know that they can do hard things. Um, the blame the system narrative is essentially that the American dream is out of people's grasp because America itself is this oppressive nation, you know, based on your skin color, your gender, your economic class, any number of factors the system is rigged against you. You know, you, um, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner if you're a black kid or capitalism itself is evil. Um, and that these systems are so rigged, so discriminatory, um, you know, both, you know, historically and present day that you don't have a shot, you know, if you're a young person and the only shot you do have is if someone else, you know, if there's a massive, for example, if you're black, that there's a, massive trillion dollar reparations program that comes to your aid. And it, it's this kind of narrative that's just so overwhelming. You as an individual are essentially powerless. 
that's and just the term that I mentioned at the outset, the term equity, like that's the type of of thinking and messaging that you're going to find in schools that promote that idea, um, which you go into in your book. Can yes. you yeah, talk a little bit about how um, how agency runs up against equity? And I guess also then about this, uh, perhaps the um, blame the system, you know, there's the blame the system, blame the victim kind of yep. uh, continuum that you talked about in which neither one's totally right. Um, so that would be yeah, great to yeah. kind of tell us where agency fits in. When I went to Harvard Business School, um, uh, you know, the, the term equity was a really powerful term. It was everyone wanted equity because at that time, equity meant, you know, you could get on the ground floor of all these amazing companies like Google. So equity had this this aura of an opportunity to, to join this enterprise with unlimited potential. You know, this whole idea that you could really excel as an individual as part of something larger. Today, equity is much more about a zero sum game where it's all measuring differences between identity groups and equity is, um, you know, equal outcomes amongst identity groups. Because if, if you don't have equal outcomes and you've got inequity, and, and any disparity is almost always in the blame the system ideology where it's like, whoa, well, if there's a disparity in outcomes and reading between black and white kids, then it must be because of racial discrimination against black kids. And it's almost every category. The only explanation is this overwhelming dominant ideology of discrimination and, and, you know, negative sort of, you know, the 1619 project is probably a great example of this where everything that, you know, it's particularly around issues of race that there's an, in the United States, you know, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of the country. And so an equity-based argument, almost always the message to young people is that, that there are these systems that have been designed for your destruction, that if there are any disparities, it has nothing to do with you. It's all about these systems that are forcing um, these disparities. And I think that is an incredibly crippling message for young people. Now, I will later I'll talk about maybe the elements that there are systemic barriers that I will talk through, but this overwhelming message of sort of futility in the face of these oppressive forces, I think robs young people of agency. Oh, just wanted to ask quickly, have you ever come across any research that kind of uh, sheds some light on what these systemic barriers are and a lot of what really is presented as, an, as a narrative more than something that I have found to be terribly supported by data, but maybe I just haven't come across it? Well, you know, so I run schools uh, in the Bronx, in New York, um, you know, we're in public charter schools. And, uh, you know, back in 2019, I think it was the last year that the this analysis was done, but there were about 33,000 open seats for public charter schools across the city. And there were 81,000 families applying. And, you know, I can tell you one of the most heartbreaking days is lottery, is the lottery when we've got to call all these families to tell them, well, some families we call to say, hey, you got the golden ticket. It's a great thing. Um, you, you got in. But when you have to you notify 50,000 families that the best you can do is put your child on an excruciatingly long wait list. 
that's devastating because you know what the options that they have to go to. The reason I raise this as, a, as an example of a systemic barrier is that in New York City, there's a cap on charter schools, right? So if someone wanted to open a great school as, you know, as we just did, um, it's really hard because they're literally legislation banning the ability uh, to create new schools. And so that's a, that's a real example of a systemic barrier that a seven-year-old kid cannot solve. But it's a very different barrier than this kind of dominant narrative that's solely based on your race. You're inherently oppressed. And that's where um, most of the, the this blame the system it's created this kind of aura around, um, well, you know, if you're of a certain gender, if you're a certain sexual orientation, if you're of a certain color, just again, this idea that the system is rigged against you. And I just find that crippling. And there's lots of data that shows um, when kids hear this message over and over and over and over again, after a while, you start to believe it and it saps your ability to believe that you can excel. But let me just quickly say, because I do want to get in the, the blame the victim narrative, because one thing I think it's, the reason I think hopefully agency will have some traction amongst people of different political stripes is that I try to acknowledge that not only I, I, do, I, I do have issues with blame the system as I've just described, but the pendulum shouldn't swing all the way to the other side, which is what I call the blame the victim. Um, ideology, which basically says if you're not successful, that means you're the problem. America is great. America's a land of opportunity, but you're the problem, right? You're the architect of your own failure. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so you're the one who's, you know, sort of made the bed that you're sleeping in. Of course, the challenge with that ideology of blame the victim is that it ignores what happens when a child is born into perhaps an unstable family or not part of a faith community that supports them, or like in New York City, not having access to great schools because of the lack of school choice. So we have to acknowledge that you can't, uh, you know, agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. There are institutions that kids need in order to be able to exercise that agency. We'll be back with more from our guest, Ian Rowe, right after this. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to our program. I mean, there are kids, you know, you read about kids every once in a while that do escape poverty, do escape bad family life or, you know, single family household or something like that and are able to succeed. Obviously, that's, you know, fewer than we would like. Um, 
you know, how do you sort of reconcile some kids being able to do that, but not most kids being able to do that? Well, it's a really, really good question, because that's what I think I've observed over the last 20, 30 years. Like, are all these kids just random superheroes? You know, are they just, you know, just gifted in some way that they were able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? And what I've found is that kids in challenging situations who ultimately lead flourishing lives, there are, in my view, typically four institutions that have played some role in allowing them to overcome whatever challenges they face. And I call those four institutions free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship that somehow one or more of those pillars have played a role in the lives of kids and some adult who has made a deliberate effort to engage uh, young people around one of those four. So when I say F for family, it's not about the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form. So that's why things like the success sequence, which is data which says if, if a young person just finishes at least a high school degree, um, then gets a full-time job of any kind just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if they have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class. That's really important information young people need to know that no matter what situation they were born into, there's a pathway to prosperity by, by uh, building the family that they choose, that they create. And that's the first part of family. And that's, again, a lot of the kids you see who emerge are often, who emerge successfully, are often creating a very different family situation that they may have experienced in their own. I'll quickly run through the rest. R for religion, the power of a personal faith commitment. I mean, it, you know, it is interesting that religiosity is going down amongst Young people, like the highest growing category of religious affiliation is none, N-O-N-E. They're called the nuns. Mm -hmm. And yet the data shows that for young people who do have a personal faith commitment, much lower levels of loneliness, much lower levels of depression, alienation, more time in the real world as part of weekly rituals with people that love you and have your back. So the data is overwhelming. So one of the things I want to do is educate more young people about what the benefits are of a personal faith commitment. E for education, obviously that's all about having more school choice, empowering more parents to be able to select the kind of educational environment that they think would work for their kids. And then if you have a strong family that you form, strong faith commitment, strong education through educational choice, that last E is almost the, the byproduct. E for entrepreneurship. This, so it's not just a job, but it's actually your ability to be a problem solver in your own life. You're an informed risk taker because you've built the foundation of support that oftentimes helps people envision a very different future for what they want to create for their life. So the last E, entrepreneurship, while it's often associated with like starting a business, it, it's also just like engineering your life because you've built the foundation. And so that's what I would say for most young people, it's usually not random, right? It's usually not that they just suddenly woke up one day and they knew all the things to do in their life. 
But it sounds like from what you said, you, you do need an adult in your life, a mentor or something. It can be family. It doesn't have to be family. Uh, you know, can be someone you know, religion related. Is that is that right? I mean, it, it's seems like you do need someone pulling for you. Yeah, I mean, optimally, it's your two parents. But right. the, the whole idea is that no child or again, as you say, there are always exceptions. But even those exceptions, there's usually someone someone and and again i think it's associated with one of these institutions that has helped a young person envision a life that's different like i define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment the force of your free will guided by moral discernment so the the idea there is that every young person has free will they have the ability to make decisions. So think of agency like a vector, like velocity. Like velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So the question is, if a young person has free will, how do you, what's the forces that are going to help them exercise that free will? In which direction should I point it? And that's where the free framework, I believe, can be an empowering alternative to blame the system and blame the victim that in some ways are robbing young people of agency when we actually want to let more young people know about the tools that they do have. They don't have to be alone. But yes, an adult in their life, usually associated with one of these four pillars, in my view, would dramatically change the trajectory of many young people across race. Do you think that these elements, the free elements, are there some that are more important than others? Are they equally important? Um, or does that vary by by situation? The, the, there's a reason it's not um, Earth. E Earth or E for Ephra. Family. It's so I'm guessing it, yes, yes, family is is comes first. It's the anchor, and again, it's not the yeah. family that you're from. It's the family that you form. That's a really important message because not everyone is born into the you know the the perfect uh you know quote-unquote perfect you know traditional nuclear family and and let it be said that just because a kid is born into a married two-parent household doesn't mean that they're guaranteed success nor is the you you know as a child of a young single mom a guaranteed failure but the data is overwhelming that if you if you form a strong family in the ways that i just said you know school, work, um, marriage, then children, the likelihood of you living in poverty is extremely low. The likelihood of your spouse, the likelihood of your child, you know, it just makes a difference. And ultimately, young people have to be the decision makers in their own life. But the early decisions, particularly ages, you know, 15 to 24, when you're thinking about things like relationships and education, your job, family formation, that kind of sets the tone. Now, once you have formed a strong family, then the other elements are, you know, it's not, they're not equal, but they're, um, um, they, they then like cherry on top, <laughs> you know, so yes. a, a faith commitment can enhance your life in whole new ways. You become part of communities, as I said before, that love you. Education, again, like having educational choice. I mean, imagine in, in the district in which we're opening our new high school, Vertex Partnership Academy, of of all the kids that started ninth grade 
in 2015 in this district as a whole, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college, right? Meaning that they, you know, reading that they, they started ninth grade and either they dropped out or they did earn their high school diploma. They actually, you know, walked across the aisle and yet they still couldn't do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college. And there's a cap, right? In this district. Yeah. And and we wanted to talk about that. I mean, it sounds like, you know, there is great need for Vertex Partnership Academies, yet you ran into quite a bit of resistance. Um, In particular, the teachers unions were not really happy about the uh, conception and implementation of this academy. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, what that process was like, and just what what were some of the the barriers that were put in your way to bring this incredible, you know, type of school uh, to this area that needed it so desperately. Yeah, it's, you know, it's very challenging because, you know, as someone who runs schools, I have great empathy and great respect for teachers, you know, because teachers, you know, a well-prepared teacher can make classrooms sing in terms of what can be achieved for kids. It's amazing. You know, I've had the pleasure of working with lots of incredible teachers and yet the, the entity that represents teachers, the teachers union, sometimes diabolically seems to be at 100% cross purposes with what we all should be seeking to accomplish. So in this case, you know, we came up with what we thought was a great idea, which was to empower existing charter schools that currently end at eighth grade to do what they have the ability to do, which is to extend to high school, like charter schools usually start at elementary school, they then extend to middle school, but oftentimes they don't uh, extend to high school just because high school is a much more complex um, enterprise, it's more expensive, you need teachers with more subject matter expertise, it's just it's just very different than running elementary and middle, and most- Was elementary- that a way around the cap? It's not, no, it's but, not a way around- it, it, not it, a way around it. So, you know, it, by expanding. Okay. Yeah, because even if there even if there were no cap, this this what we've structured would still be very attractive to uh, charter schools that currently only go through eighth grade. Because the whole idea is if you if you extend your existing charter through twelfth grade, then you can offer uh, a seat at our incredible international baccalaureate high school as a guaranteed option. Right, as opposed to if you just started a brand new high school, then you would you would you, you would it basically be open to all ninth graders, which is a good thing, but it's different than an extension. So, so imagine imagine if you ran a, an elementary charter school, then you opened up a middle school. The whole idea is that all the kids who went to elementary school can now go to your middle school, right? And were you hearing a lot from the existing families, please do this? Oh my we, gosh, yes. I bet. Yeah, because, I mean, again, if you're, if you, in, in New York City, there are approximately 186 charter elementary schools, but only 29 go all the way through 12th grade. So what that means is about wow. 85% of kids in charter schools in New York City who may have a great elementary and middle school education, the vast majority of them are thrust back, you know, after eighth grade, they're thrust back into what I call the abyss of the high school selection process, because there, there frankly just aren't enough great high schools. 
And so I said, well, what if we created a way that existing charters could extend their, you know, their grades from K to eight to K to 12, and then they could partner with us, Vertex Partnership Academies, as a charter management organization where we would run a high quality high school as a guaranteed option for their rising ninth graders. So that's, that's basically what we said. Now, to your point, Andrew, the, the teachers union said, no, 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 you're trying to get around the cap. This is illegal, even though it's completely legal and there's precedent for it in terms of how KIPP and Success Academy and other major networks have launched their high schools. But the teachers union was determined. You know, I even met with Randy Weingart. You know, I mean, a face to face. with friendly? Yeah, it was friendly, okay. <laughs> but it, we were still we were still sued. Still adversaries. Okay. <laughs> why? Let me. Well, I want to jump in. Why? Why do the teachers unions hate charter schools? Competition. Uh, you know. I mean, I know. I don't think we all know the answer, but I'm curious. I mean, you've you've you know, gone up against them. I mean, what you've been in the charter school world. I mean, why? You know, I mean, the easy answer is, yeah, it's, it's competition. Generally, charter schools aren't unionized, so we're not adding to their coffers to some degree. The success of charter schools has exposed that, um, you know, because in New York City, for example, we're co-located. So oftentimes we're literally in the same physical building and you might have charter schools on some metrics like state tests and other outcomes that are far outperforming not only the the district in which they're in, but even the same physical building. So, you know, so these are areas that, you know, may make unions um, suspect or, or, or hostile. And, you know, I, and I find that very unfortunate. I, I try very much to find ways, how can we work together towards the ultimate betterment of kids and not just the kids within our respective schools, but, you know, across the entire community. And yet, even with that attitude, I mean, I've faced a barrage of, of attacks. And yet, you know what? We just stay determined. You know, our vertex is dedicated to this idea of equality of opportunity, individual dignity, our common humanity. Like that's the organizing principle of our school. And, you know, it's the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, wisdom, Parents want, you know, parents want a, in our case, a virtues-based international baccalaureate high school that's going to have pathways either for college or you can have um, earned credentials in industries like phlebotomy or computer science. So if a child wants that, they can actually enter the workplace immediately out of high school. This is what I think I would hope teachers unions and others would want to fight for as well. More optionality for kids, but sometimes it doesn't. But so, you know, sometimes you got to put your battle gear on. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what we did. Do you also, in addition to the, the quality, it sounds like you're offering, what is the spend compared to what a, a public school would be spending per student? Yeah, good question. So first of all, a charter school is a public school. Correct. Right? Yes. So that's very important to point out because oftentimes there's a false division created. But in New York City, we receive about 20% less um, per student than the traditional district school receives. So it's a, it's a meaningful difference. But the idea is that even with that, we show that over time, even at a lower per pupil um, expenditure, 
we can still get, and, and again, by the way, this is not every charter school. There's some charter schools that aren't great. You know, let's just say that. And there's some district schools that are great, right? But again, the vast majority of schools, charter schools, you know, are doing, certainly in New York City, are doing well. And when they're not doing well, there's an accountability structure that says, well, either you got to get better or you're going to be shut down. And so, um, so we, we usually typically spend less. We have an accountability structure that ensures that we're demonstrating what we committed to in terms of academic uh, outcomes for our kids, financial, uh, appropriate financial management. So I think, you know, charter schools, when I talk about the E in free, that's, should be part of the mix in most localities. More parents, especially coming out of COVID and seeing the battles around critical race theory and all these things that are starting to infiltrate schools, more parents are saying, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. Give me choice. And I really wish teachers unions and sort of defenders of the status quo would sometimes put their, um, put themselves in the seat of a parent, you know, a parent of a six-year-old who is in a school district where only 7% of kids are graduating from high school, ready for college. What do you want that person to do? Right. Right. And this, this gets at an idea that from your book that I really liked this um, distance to 100 mindset yeah, yeah. over, over the parody and mediocrity that yes. a lot of the more equity mindset aims to. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? I, I would sense that that is definitely being implemented uh, at your schools. Yes. Uh, but just tell, tell people what that is and, um, and and why you think it's important. Yeah. So, you know, if of all the ideas, I, I put many of I, I put many ideas in the book, but I'm really hoping this one sort of emerges. If you um, listen to most people in sort of the education reform arena, their number one goal, we got to close the racial achievement gap. Like just, just take a, just take a, a gander you'll see that somehow closing some kind of gap between one identity group and the other is the goal, right? And on its surface, that seems fine. Um, but here's the thing, like, let's just talk about the racial achievement gap and of which there has been for 30, 40 years, right? So there's no questioning that there's a gap between, for example, black students and white students, right? But if you look at the actual data of white students, if you use the National Assessment for Educational Progress, what's often called the nation's report card, there has never been a year since, since the early 90s that a majority of white students are even reading at grade level. I think maybe it's like 44, 45% is the highest it's ever been of white students. Right. So if we close the racial achievement gap, if we have black kids equal white kids in terms of outcomes, then we have achieved universal mediocrity. Right. Which and, is pathetic. Right. <laughs> it's like not exactly reaching for the stars. No, there. no. And it's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that the majority of white kids are not reading at grade level. Right. So perhaps there are factors outside of race that we need to focus on. So if we change our aperture from being obsessed with closing the racial achievement gap between these 
you know, blunt categories of black kids versus white kids, what if our orientation was distance to 100, which means the distance of wherever an individual kid is today to the top level performance. And then we start asking the questions, what is holding all kids back from seeking excellence? Then we might start to realize that, huh, maybe race is a factor, but it actually seems that there are a lot of high performing, like for example, at our charter schools, those kids aren't chock full of white kids. You know, it's mostly black and Hispanic kids and they're performing at the highest levels in some charter schools. So why is that? Is it because of family engagement? Is it because of access to high quality schools? Is it because they're implementing the science of reading in elementary schools, right? Is it because of the difference in study hours and culture? And so you widen your aperture. Part of the, the challenge of the blame the system ideology is that it, it puts so much emphasis on these systemic barriers based around these uh, certain identity characteristics that it crowds out all of the other factors like family structure that are far more decisive in determining what outcomes um, uh, kids are likely to have. And so a distance to 100 framework would shift this idea. So we wouldn't always be looking, like for example, the, just a couple of weeks ago, the National Assessment for Educational Progress was released for, um, for nine-year-olds to, to try and get a sense of what the, um, what the impact of closures have been over the last few years. And the first set of headlines were, you know, A, there's been a decline, but there's a, the, but there's a gap in between uh, blacks and white kids in, in terms of how much that, that gap, um, how much that decline is. Like, okay, but do we start with the premise that, again, not even uh, less than a majority of white nine-year-olds are reading at grade level? So yes, there's a decline of all, and yes, there's a gap, but maybe there's, and again, this is not to ignore race as a factor. It's just trying to be more comprehensive as to how we think about these problems. Because I can tell you, we're not waiting in our schools in the Bronx, we're not waiting for white kids to suddenly show up to then suddenly have high expectations for what we're gonna accomplish for our kids, right? So there has to be something else outside of these blunt categories. And so that's why I'm hoping distance 100 just makes us think differently about how we, how we um, identify these issues, we develop our theories of what I call causality. Again, in a, in a, in a, you know, using reading, the causality is almost, well, it must be systemic racism. That's why black kids are doing well, are not doing well. And that's because that's the reason for the gap. It's like, well, I don't know. It's not racism that's holding white kids back. So what is it? And, and if we have this kind of approach, I think we discover that the same factors that hold white kids back from doing well in reading are likely the same things that held black kids back. Doesn't mean that there might not be issues of race or racism, but it's far less to a degree than the current approach makes it so. One, one last question for me to follow up on that. How would you define where that 100 is? In well, other words, is it is everyone being you know, grade level in reading or math, or is it some higher level? Um, you know, is, is it sort of test-based? You know, where, yeah. where's the 100? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think every school 
should, I think there should be um, baseline outcomes that 100% of kids are, we are, you know, seeking for kids to achieve. And then each school on top of that can define, you know, within the arts, we want all kids to do X or we want all kids to learn a foreign language, right? So I think each school should define what it's 100% means. And sometimes that's a function of standardized tests or it could be more performance-based. So I think every school should define that, but there are anchors. And so I think reading, you know, I was at the White House, you know, I, I worked at the White House right after 9-11 um, uh, so I worked uh, 2002, 2003, the No Child Left Behind Act had just been passed. And so, you know, so I was at the White House in those early days when the, the legislation was being conceived and then implemented. And what was interesting about that, the impetus of the uh, bill made sense. It was like, well, all kids should be reading at third grade and we should test, test the um, capacity in reading and math through eighth grade, because that's important. So the, the idea of 100% proficiency was not a crazy one. That's what No Child Left Behind was all about. Like no child should be left behind, right? That's 100% proficiency. But what happened in terms of the implementation, because these things became so high stakes, educators started to actually put so much emphasis on these exams that you started to see like the average amount of time spent on science or social studies in the elementary school curriculum, it just went away. So in New York City, for example, you know, science used to be five days a week. Now you might have it one session a week, 40 minutes, history, social studies, all replaced now by, you know, these ELA blocks, which are basically content-free um, uh, uh, blocks of time where you're focused on reading skills as opposed to building knowledge. So. So, so I, I say this as an example that when, from a legislative perspective, and this is why it's so dangerous when the federal government tries to create a one-size-fits-all um, piece of legislation for all kids, it creates so much pressure that in this case, what seemed like a good objective, which was 100% reading and math um, in third to eighth grade, given that the foundation is so important and that it should be tested, actually had the adverse impact mm -hmm. of shrinking curricula in schools, right. which in my view had an even worse impact on reading and math outcomes. Good intentions, but unintended consequences. Yes. And yeah. I, think, I think that one size fits all uh, message is so important um, to remember. And, you know, it seems every 20 years, there's a new program that is designed to, you know, reverse the trends that the previous program instituted. And so it's, there's, it keeps a lot of people busy. That's for sure. Have you heard about the new plan to just um, uh, forgive student loans? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So higher education. That's it. Yeah. How, so about, far, how about that? But that's the latest version of. Uh, right. That's going to really engender lots of qualities that are going to make us a really successful society. I mean, it just yes, oh, we could. It's um, going to be we devastating. Could, Devastating, it, primarily for low-income kids. School, schools will drive up tuition in the same way that they have. Mm -hmm. You know, once the government yep. starts subsidizing a thing, like Pell Grants, mm -hmm. guess what? Yep. You know, you get more of it. You get more of it, and it costs more. And so, again, yes. like the, these these ideas, um, and that's what's so frustrating as someone who runs schools. Like we see it every single day. Mm -hmm. We see the unintended. But this point, he's got to think it's got to be intended. But these unintended consequences of 
so-called well-thought-out policy, it hurts children. Mm -hmm. And we just got to be honest. You know, when you when you make these claims that, well, systemic racism or blame the system is at the core of all these issues, it's just not being honest because we have to study success in the same way that we have studied failure for so long. And when you start to study success, you start to see it isn't random. There are factors, and that's why I created my framework free. There are institutions that transcend race, that transcend gender, that transcend even economic class in terms of giving kids a real shot at success within their own lives. And that's what we got to keep fighting for. Yes, we hope that attention, parents continue to pay attention. Um, and we are just really glad that there are organizations like yours that are giving kids real choice um, and a real chance uh, at, at success. And we're also glad that you captured so much of what we talked about today in your book. So we encourage people to check it out. I'm sure they can get it wherever they buy their, their volumes. Yes. And Ian, we just thank you for spending this time with us. And we'd love to have you back so we can hear yeah. how it's going. And uh, yeah, check in. Check it. I love it. Well, let's, yeah, let's come back in a couple of months. And, you know, um, I think it's really important that people know that there are actually institutions that are standing up for core virtues. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not that we are against things like diversity and inclusion, it's just the way in which we think about these things starts from the basis of individual dignity, common humanity, not preordained negative stereotypes that drive people into their, their, their corners. That's not the way we want to create environments for our kids. No, we want empowering ones uh, and, and you are creating one. So thank you again. Thank uh, you. On behalf of myself and Andrew. Great. Yeah, thank you. So remarkable man, all, all that yes. he's done, and we don't, and we won't recover everything that we covered with him. But but it's really incredible, and the new school and his school board experience and his agency book and his ideas on on uh, on education and family and faith and everything. So I know you're he's a friend of yours, uh, and I yes. hope we do get the chance to have him back. Oh, we absolutely should, and um, I'm sure he'll have you know. 10 other initiatives going yeah. on. Uh, so which, which, and the world's better off for it because he just is a guy, he just exudes positivity and empowerment. And so. And I'm it's such the opposite glad. of this, of this divisive, negative, it systemic is. racism is. ideology. That's why, you know, he is such a great antidote in what he's doing in schools and how he's running them. And I'm very happy that his ideas have been captured in this book because I, I read it and it's, um, it's a great read and it will, it will leave you feeling positive and that this really is within reach for every child in the United States, um, as it should be really the world. And so, um, we will definitely have him back so that we can check yeah. in on, on how well it's going. And it reminds me a little bit of, of Bob Woodson, who we had on mm -hmm. a few months ago, also, uh, you yes. know, a positive message and one that, you know, theoretically every kid can benefit from if, mm -hmm. if the education and, and everything else is there. So on that note, yeah, you yeah. can hear echoes of, of Bob in, in Ian's work and um, in the book at the, uh, Bob wrote the afterword for it and talks about, um, you know, something that Ian, 
invokes in the book and that is a passion of Bob's, which is this notion of mediating institutions, yeah. which really is kind of the, the engine of free um, when you talk about you know family structure and a faith community and ways that you can create around you these structures that help kind of you know bridge between, he was talking about those types of, of mentalities, uh, the blame the victim, yeah. um, the et cetera. System. And the yeah. system that um, it's, you know, it's, it's an individual, but it's also those groups around that individual that really can create the um, environment for success. Yeah. So it's fun to have a positive episode and a positive message. It so is. on that note, thank you everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ian Rowe. We will be back soon with another hopefully positive conversation. I'm Andrew Gutman on behalf of Beth Feely. Thank you for joining us. If you liked us, please share us, give us a good review. And we'll talk to you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.